Hello and welcome and bienvenue, konnichiwa, it's time for the Armist Inquisition yet again, episode 171 on Sunday the 14th of February, happy Valentine's Day everyone, I'm Armish Phil, I'm Armish Ben, I'm Armish Matt, and tonight we've got author, researcher, esoteric astrologer and member of the Theosophical Society, Gary Kidgel here to talk to us, how are we doing Gary? Absolutely fine, lots of snow up here, I'm quite enjoying it. Yeah, you're up, in, you're up in Bonnie, Scotland. I am indeed on the east coast, an area called Brockley Ferry to the east of Dundee. Cool. I was just saying before, I was looking at um, your page on the Theosophical Society and you've got all this list of topics that you've spoken on over the years going back over, you know, you've been a member for decades now. And it gives you yeah, a, a bit of, um, I kind of think, like, where to start, really. But <laughs> I think... Um, a good useful place to start for people would be to talk a little bit about theosophy, um, uh, what the sort of, uh, mantra is not the right word, what's the philosophy behind it and how you got involved Absolutely. with it? Absolutely, I'm very happy to do that, Phil. Theosophy means divine wisdom, as you probably know. The Theosophical Society was founded in 1875 by Helena Blavatsky, uh, Henry Alcott and William Kwan Judge. Uh, three primary objects were articulated. The first one being the fundamental one of uh, the former nucleus of the universal brotherhood of humanity, without regardless, regardless rather of race, sex, creed, or colour. And that is based on the fact that we are all aspects of one divine life. Therefore, everything is interconnected. We, we are essentially all one and the same. You know, we are all aspects of the divine spirit engaged on a long evolutionary journey to acquire certain qualities, unfold hitherto latent qualities whilst in physical form. And theosophy is all about really letting the world know, alerting people to that fact. The second object is the study of comparative religion, philosophy and science, and the third one to investigate the unexplained and powers latent within humanity. And really the third one, it's not about sitting around tables for seances, it's more about understanding what we call the soul or higher self, which incarnates with a particular purpose. You know, it, the soul is the instrument of our spirit, what theosophy calls the monad, and the soul is on a long evolutionary journey, undertaking many incarnations in various, you know, races and cultures and so on, as a means of learning every lesson life in form has to offer, unfolding what we call symbolic petals of knowledge, love and sacrifice. In essence, we're here to learn, get involved with matter, 
learn everything there is to know, then we're called back. Called back, to you could call it the Father's house, if you wish, the very source of our being. And that's when the spiritual path begins. And theosophical teachings are very much related to this as well. Yeah, one of the things that's quite um, sometimes confusing for, for a novice like me, um, when you start looking at sort of these sort of Eastern mysticism and the, theosophy and different things, is when they yeah. talk about mind, soul and spirit and a, a lot of there's a lot of confusion between what's the soul and what's the spirit how do you, they interrelate what's the difference sort of thing yeah the uh, theosophical view the paradigm i emphasize the word paradigm is uh, we are all aspects of a far greater consciousness which is evolving through our solar system Theosophy calls it the solar logos, and we as monads or spirit are a part of this greater being. And for that greater being to grow, we have to grow. We are the component parts, and we're projected down into matter. But spiritually, our spirit vibrates at such a high frequency, it doesn't come down into matter itself. It adopts mechanisms. So the soul is in, is in a fact the instrument or mechanism of spirit. It serves as an intermediary between spirit and matter. And the personality, the four of us here, with our physical bodies, our emotions and minds, are instruments of the soul. Right, yeah, so each level below. I I like to try and keep it as as, uh, simple as possible. I remember when I first embraced the esoteric uh, in the early to mid-'80s, I used to go down to London to the bookshops and come home loaded up. And the very first theosophical book I came across was called The Study in Consciousness by Annie Besson. And I thought to myself, gosh, this is exactly what I'm looking for. It's fantastic. But after uh, browsing three or four pages, there were so many Sanskrit terms. I thought, oh, this is well way above me. I, you know, I'm, not going to come to terms with this. So it was five years later before I took the plunge with theosophy. So I do think it's important with any esoteric system that the teachings are put across in the language of the day where, where they're applicable to everyday life. Uh, yeah, that makes a lot more sense. That sort of you've got the spirit at the top and then each yeah. level underneath is the instrument of the level above. Yeah. On sort of like a different plane, almost. of Exactly. The Yeah, theosophy talks of seven fundamental planes, spirit being at, on the first and second. Then you have the soul, and the lower ones you have physical, emotional or astral, and, and mental. And the human mind, part of it's linked to the personality, what we call the lower mind, but the higher abstract mind, that's the beginning of the planes of the soul. Wow. Yeah, these are difficult <laughs> concepts, aren't they, to try and get your head around? Um, they take, I mean, I always say reading an esoteric book, the secret, as my mentor, a guy called Douglas Baker, would always say, is read two or three paragraphs at a time and go away and ponder on the content. Don't blitz it. But, no, it really does take a bit of study and contemplation but essentially, if one says to oneself, well, I'm a soul in a body, I'm here to 
approach life in a heart-centered way, display empathy and compassion towards others, unconditional love, realize we're all one in the same, these sort of things. You know, to me, that's the best approach. Uh, and, of course, many religions already embrace that to a certain extent, at least. And we have the mystery practices as well, of course. Uh, yeah, it reminds me, the first point you mentioned of the Theosophical Society, the the sort of divine consciousness, for lack of a yeah, better universal word. universal brotherhood based upon that, yeah. That sort of run parallels quite closely to, to some of the Gnostic teachings of the, you know, we're in individual points of light, all trying to get back to sort of a unity in the next realm, sort of way. Yeah, I think, well, in my opinion, I have... I have looked at most of the world religions and esoteric teachings, applying the theosophical paradigm, and they're pretty much saying the same thing. It's all about spirit uh, coming down into matter and, and seeking to return. You know, you find that in all the teachings, and theosophy has an eastern slant. I would say the Vedanta teachings that Advaita Vedanta are closest to the theosophical, or you might say theosophy is closest to Vedanta, as that came first. But Vedanta and the Neoplatonists like Plotinus and Porphyry, etc., Madame Blavatsky used to cite them quite a bit. But again, it doesn't matter, you know, what point of the compass you're, you're looking at. The pe people are all essentially saying the same thing. Obviously, that understanding's coloured by their point in time, their particular culture, and so on. Yeah. But we're all yeah. one man, if you want to use a hippie term to <laughs> describe it all, you know. You mentioned the the influence of, of Eastern traditions on theosophy. Yeah. Does, does the concept of karma play a role in theosophy then? Where if you are very much so, if yes. You do something uh, terrible in this still life, being engaged on its evolutionary journey. Karma is absolutely fundamental for every action. There's a reaction. And ultimately, it serves an educational purpose in terms of the learning process of the soul unfolding latent qualities on behalf of the spirit. Uh, I mean, we obviously, we talk of good karma and difficult karma, but ultimately... You know, when the soul is completing its journey, all karma must be transcended, must be worked off, then set aside. Uh, when we function at that level of the soul, we are not accruing further karma. But, right. I mean, it's a massive, massive concept. Uh, again, my mentor, Douglas Baker, who was a theosophist, he said, as well as our own karma, you have family karma, racial karma, planetary karma. So it's not as simplistic as pointing to someone perhaps who's uh, suffering from a disability and saying, oh, well, this is all from a past life and look at me. It's not like that at all. We're, and advanced souls tend to take on more. That's the teachings of the Christ dying on the cross, dying for the sins of humanity. He took on a greater share of the planetary karma. The more advanced the soul, the more of that karma it's expected to take on. This is one of, um, you just sort of touched there on, on one of the major criticisms I've heard. I remember, I think it was Stephen Fry, so, and he was doing some sort of debate about the existence of God or something. Yeah. And he mentioned about some fly or something that 
burrows into the eyes of children or something, some te- completely horrible thing. And in sort of how how can you sort of how do you rationalize that and make that jive with your karma belief system that something so horrible can happen to what seems a completely innocent child? Well, that child will have had many lives before. I think we just have to look at the history of humanity uh, to be aware there'll all be aspects of karma we have, which is which can be particularly challenging. Uh, uh, but again, uh, perhaps the child is working off karma on behalf of a group or planet. It's a difficult one. Uh, yeah, it's most terrible. In terms of spirit being in matter or the soul in a body, perhaps walking into the supermarket and hitting the jackpot on the lottery, you do the line. That might not necessarily be a good thing from a spiritual point of view. I mean, I had uh, quite a serious illness throughout my 30s, uh, which really stopped me in my tracks. But when... When I look back, as well as seeing the karma in the astrology chart, I think, uh, well, if that had not happened, my life probably would have taken a a different course and I would not have studied the esoteric to the extent which I have, for better or for worse. But I do think it's a massive subject. You probably remember when Glenn Hoddle ventured into the subject of karma. The man meant no harm. He, he gave a sort of simplistic answer, or he made a simplistic statement, which I thought was potentially very dangerous. And, uh, you know, I, I think he was very unwise to make that statement and a bit ill-informed as well. Uh, that That's just my point of view. Uh, I think he's a good guy, you know, and... Uh, He's a loving person, but uh, I, I think he was a bit set set up as well because the English media wanted him out of the job. But I thought he was very naive to mention that. But even great souls like Ramana Maharshi in what many believe was his last incarnation, he developed, I think it was cancer, and said, well, it's karma, you know, going way back. Uh, the Indian teachings talk of three sets of forms of karma, the entire pool that the soul has accumulated throughout its many incarnations, there's karma which the soul has chosen to work off in the current incarnation, and then there's karma being accrued in that particular incarnation. But if one is undertaking spiritual discipline, sometimes the process will be accelerated. It's an acknowledged factor in the esoteric that when one makes a spiritual commitment the soul will test their worthiness and seek to offload more karma you know because the soul it's like uh helena blavatsky in a classic voice of the silence uses the analogy of a potter with a wheel molding clay and our personalities are there to be molded by the soul to be ultimately fashioned into a perfected instrument of expression yeah, so you're sort of constantly being tested with what you can, the burden that you can manage, in a sense. Yes. Wow, that's a really interesting concept. It but kind of course, by uh, approaching life, coming from the heart, displaying unconditional love, discriminating between what's spiritual and isn't, 
showing compa- compassion and empathy for others, etc. You know that, and it's also stated the best way to work off difficult karma is to perform service work, hard work on behalf of humanity. Yeah, you know, but uh, yeah, it, it's an immense subject. You know, uh, there's racial karma, planetary karma, national karma. You know, it's uh, one of the, one of the. I feel th- I'll get out of my depth, but just coming <laughs> at it from my sort of background, just trying to give a bit of perspective that what what is good for the personality isn't necessarily good for the soul, and vice versa. Mm. You know, Shakespeare said, sweet are the uses of adversity, and that's a, a very powerful quote. Uh, yeah, well, I was thinking earlier, um, one of, it's been in the news again this week, but sort of one of the most sort of popular and most controversial figures over the last few years, Jordan Peterson, I don't know if you're familiar with him. Yes, I'm the, familiar with him. I mean, he's a very talented psychologist and a highly intelligent man, yes. Uh, yeah, he's a huge fan of uh, Carl Jung as well. Yeah, and uh, one, one of, so am I. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe we'll get onto that. I mean, I've, I don't really know anything about Jungian archetypes, but uh, one of his sort of core messages in his writing is that you need to, like you say, lift this burden. You need to carry a burden to sort of provide meaning for your life. And, you know, like you mentioned, the lottery winner, if you're handed everything on the plate, there's sort of, there's no room for development there and the chances are you might go backwards. That's a very good point. I mean, if you're born beautiful and rich and so on and so on, and you can just go uh, anywhere in the world that you want to, obviously the last year or so has been a bit different, but it would be very hard for the soul then to make an impression and for the person to slow down and say, well, wait a minute, what does life mean? And obviously not a situation I've ever been in. uh, You know, there you go. No, I just think that... um... The fact that he's become so popular, it's it sort of shines a light on on something that I think is missing in, in our society. When you look back at the last uh, thirty years or so since the rise of the new atheists, um, Chris Hitchin and and such, we've become sort of more mechanistic and less interested in these subjects. And us three are, you won't mind us saying, Gary, we're a bit younger than you. But we we've been yeah. brought up we've been brought up under this paradigm, and a lot of our peers would be. What do you yeah. what do you say to to someone who's hardcore mechanistic uh, belief system? Who you know, if you try and talk to them about astrology, how can you how can you explain that to them in in terms that would make sense? Well, to them? I could tender a sort of metaphysical or esoteric rationale, uh, not that it would probably satisfy them. Uh, I mean, astrology is based on the fact that the whole universe is the manifestation of a supreme being, which is transcendent. Uh, The Hindus would use the term uh, parabrahman, as would theosophy, and it creates this vast universe with the sounding of the Om, And everything within that universe is alive and sentient. And the constellations of the zodiac are immense living entities, as are the planets within our solar system and the sun, of course. That's a great being. And looking at astrology, it's about looking at... To use an analogy, if you're a cell within a body, you want to operate in accord with that 
whole uh, physiology. And astrology is about aligning oneself to the universal intent, or at least serious astrology is. Uh, right. Yeah. If you're looking at it from a spiritual point of view, your natal chart, the chart at birth is your mandala, or route to wholeness of being. It shows the purpose of the soul in the incarnation, ways in which this can be expressed. Of course, I cannot uh, put forward an argument which would satisfy someone who demanded solid proof. Uh, I would say that quantum physics is beginning to contradict the uh, previous form of Newtonian science. You have quantum levels, you have... uh, dark matter and dark energy, which are really what theosophists would call etheric astral and mental levels. And this idea of of an observer affecting the experiment is the effect that consciousness has on matter. Yeah, and quantum entanglement Uh, would be another one. Getting back to what you were saying about the contemporary period, uh, I think you made a very, very good point uh, in that uh, after the war, we had, there was a sort of consensus and, you know, everyone sort of went along with the old ways and religion was still very powerful. Uh, whereas now we've watched a breakdown in traditional religion, certainly here in the UK. And in the past, that served as a container. It probably wasn't right for everyone. If you were an esoteric person, you probably wanted to plow your own furrow. But for a lot of people to be aware of this higher transcendent power, that had a powerful effect upon their psyche. And in my opinion now, we're seeing various political movements and so on where people are projecting the divine, the transcendent, onto these political movements. And, of course, when that happens, it is quite a heady mix, and it can also be quite a dangerous one uh, you know, human history tells us we just have to think of the Crusades and all. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, if, if people aren't looking within themselves and realizing the transcendent is within, and that it doesn't just apply to them, it applies to everybody else as well. You know, then we can get into difficulty. And uh, yeah, the danger is by re- removing God. Uh, what did Nietzsche say? That yeah. God is dead and, and removing religion, that something else will fill that void. And uh, you might not have any control over what that that might be or what those repercussions might be. And this is a, a dangerous place in some ways. I would agree with you entirely. Uh, of course, I think Nietzsche's comment, that was a critique of, yeah. uh, you know, his culture and their... Uh, their view of their understanding of the workings of the divine. Uh, Goodness knows what he'd be writing now. Uh, (laughs) And I also feel that his concept of the Ubermensch or Superman, which was so distorted by Nazi Germany, uh, he was really talking about spiritual initiates. We are each of us perfecting ourselves, learning that we are souls and bodies, treading the spiritual path, bringing about this self-transformation, spiritual transformation. Uh, I mean, that highlights the point so much because, I mean, I, I, I don't know much Nietzsche. I read I read, I read uh, The Spoke Zarathustra a couple yeah. of years ago and I read it and I thought, how on earth could Adolf Hitler use this and turn it into such a destructive thing for mankind? And that shows the power of 
what can happen when that void is created and when um, malevolent men seize that opportunity. Very much so. Uh, again, Zoroastrian teachings would be similar to the Gnostic teachings in terms of uh, they were dualistic. They thought there's spirit and there's matter. And unlike Indian teachings and theosophy where matter is the learning ground, they tended to see matter as intrinsically evil, a lot of the, the Gnostics. But it's more how one deals with the material world, whether it's good, evil, Yeah, that's a good point because they, yeah. they were very much quite ascetic, weren't they, the Gnostics? And, um, very much so, yes. Uh, they were sort of felt like they were battling against the flesh in a way. Is, uh, I guess, does um, theosophy sort of embrace our mortal coil, warts and all, and say, I don't know? It would really <laughs> depend on the individual, but treading the path, you should be... Uh, gaining control of the desire nature with a view towards transcending it. Uh, but the the interesting thing, of course, is we're all souls on an evolutionary journey. We're all at different stages of our spiritual unfoldment. It doesn't mean that one person is better than another. It's just like flowers coming up in the garden at different times. Uh, but for some people desire getting really involved in life is a very healthy thing getting enmeshed in the material world but when treading the path one should be moving away from that just as a child outgrows certain toys etc but I think there's also to be considered there is uh, within within the individual incarnation certainly a soul coming into western society I would, I'm generalizing, but I would say it would be best for at least the 30 years just to experience life, you know, and the more aesthetic uh, lifestyle would gradually develop. But this is in India. We're not going to be retiring into forests or wandering around like sadhus. You know, it, it's a different, uh, it's a different uh, form of spirituality. Uh, it sort of sounds like... Uh, in the West, it's living in both worlds, being aware of the spiritual and seeking to express it uh, in the material world. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't think we have to live like monks. That might be useful for a small minority of people, but for most people, I don't think it's appropriate, especially moving away from the old Piscean age into the Aquarian. You would, uh, would you equate it to sort of? trying to find the balance between order and chaos and that if you if you just let all your physical desires run wild uh, i mean that's probably going to be incredibly self-destructive and yeah, on the very other much so uh, i think treading the path one should be equipped uh, again i'll quote my mentor douglas baker saying being rich in experience and poor in attachment uh, the experience, it doesn't mean adopting an ultra-hedonistic lifestyle, but uh, it's easier for someone who's experienced what life has to offer to then put themselves together as an integrated unit which the soul can infuse with energy. If one has led a very sheltered life, but perhaps there's a bit of repression somewhere, 
I'm thinking particularly in sexual matters, and then they're getting energized from higher levels by the soul, then the sun shines on the weeds as well as the flowers, so anything unexpressed is going to come to the surface. Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't really know a lot about mental health and stuff, but repressing these things, Matt, isn't a good idea, is it? Yeah, no, no, I think it's very un- very unhealthy and very unnatural. It just creates complexes, yes. Uh, Is that sort of the source, do you think, of a lot of mental health conditions, this sort of repression of whether it be... It would be one. I'm no expert. I mean, some people, like schizophrenia, etc., it's just a very enhanced sensitivity to what theosophy would call the astral plane and all the forces there particularly the lower levels. I mean, these people, some of these people are what you might call possessed. There can be low-grade entities obsessing them. I think similarly, when people go out on the lashes, you probably use the same term. If they're getting really, really blind drunk, there's a chance of obsession. You know, you, you hear of these people doing things that are completely out of character and they can't remember a thing about it and so on. Uh, if you're if you're deadening your vibrations, lowering them to that extent, and there are sort of low-grade astral entities in the in the vicinity of pubs, etc., then that can happen. Uh, yeah, you're creating the the circumstances for that to happen by sort of letting go of your your conscious self. Would you call it? Because most of these these things that with these drugs or alcohol, or whatever they use, they sort of they all seem to impair the conscious mind to some degree yeah, well, or another. In terms of drugs, I mean, there's no doubt that a lot of people have been inspired spiritually through taking hallucinogenics. Uh, I have some friends who advocate that way of life, uh, having taken very strong natural ones. Personally, I think it's all right for them to make you aware of the inner worlds, but I think you're doing damages subtle aspects of the anatomy and this will be stored in permanent structures called permanent atoms and there may be nervous disorders and difficulties in future lives I feel you're trying to fast track the process, you know meditation is a more sensible way of uh, going about things but getting back to mental health, I mean a lot of schizophrenics are usually intelligent creative people it's simply that their emotional or astral body slips out of alignment very easily. You know, sometimes you can be walking along the road, you're fantasizing about something, but as soon as you get to the front door or something happens, you're, you're back to reality. Whereas someone with a schizophrenic condition, that could, that can last for days. Uh, you know, and of course, in certain instances, if there are, low-level vibrations, etc., or delusions, it can be, uh, it can be, you know, terrifying, I'm sure, and very difficult. I mean, I used to work in the Scottish courts until I chose a different path, and one area I worked on was people being sectioned under the Mental Health Act in Scotland. Now, I know Scots law and English law is different, but there were usually maybe two or three people a week you know, going through a tough time and uh, the doctors and family, etc., had signed for them to, un- to undergo treatment. And in those days, the two most common 
experiences of these people were like Messiah complexes, believing they were Christ, or another common one at that time was MI5, MI6 stuff, etc. Whereas I left in 1990, and I remember in the mid-90s saying, I bet there's a lot of people being sectioned now talking about alien abductions and, and UFOs and so on, because, you know, when something's in the collective consciousness and they're, People are donating energies to these astral mental forms, and you know some people are very susceptible to them. Yeah. Just to, um, I'd like to get back to back onto the astrology. Sure. Um, yeah, that that's more my ground than yeah. what I've been talking about. To be quite honest, um, it's more to, familiar terrain to me as a, a human who knows very little. I would say that I'm quite obviously connected to the Earth. We need yeah. the earth and we need water to drink and food to eat. I think you can definitely make an argument we're connected to the the moon because the moon creates the tides. There's been research about menstrual cycles being uh, tied to cool. the moon. Yeah. I don't sure. know how true that is or whatever. We're obviously tied to the sun. We'd be dead without yeah. the sun. What I, I struggle with is this next step. How How are we as individuals connected to stars which seemingly are billions and millions of light years away. Yeah. Be, be, before I address that one, I'll just mention the other planets within our solar system. I've mentioned that we all possess a physical body which has an etheric or quantum subatomic counterpart, and we have emotional and mental bodies. And similarly, there is etheric emotional and mental substance around the various planets. So whilst their energy fields may not affect us physically, the astrologer, or at least the astrologer well-versed in metaphysics, would say but they're affecting us at subtle levels, you know, particularly astral, mental, and even spiritual. And the very same thing with the constellations, uh, you know, immense immense lives are operating through these zodiacal constellations and uh, they are affecting humanity. I think also on the subject of Jung and archetypes, part of the effect of the zodiacal signs is what the energy fields humanity has created trying to understand them and assigning characteristics to them. It's like Rupert Sheldrake's concept of morphic resonance. Uh, you know, humanity has created these energy reservoirs and uh, they, they subsequently affect us, as well as the uh, constellations actually being living entities themselves. Uh, I mean, it's a vast subject. What I am talking about here is mere ABC, really, in terms of true esotericism, uh, I mean, I am, I would describe myself very much as a novice in this respect, uh, you know, in terms of bringing my consciousness up to the level of the great initiates, etc. You know, I, I'm, you know, I, I'm just trying to comment. I have that sort of mental nature. I can be like a dog with a bone. I do like to understand how things work and what life means. So I will do my best, but uh, I'm just giving you my sort of working paradigm uh, in terms of understanding these things, you know, and astrology. Uh, 
Have you had a chat done yourself, a natal chart? No, I haven't. And, you know, I think when you, if you walk up to the average guy on the street and, and say astrology, probably the first picture, in the UK anyway, the first picture they'll get is of Russell Grant in, in the 1980s on GMTV with a really loud Hawaiian shirt on or something, or the the, hol- the, the daily horoscopes in the paper. I mean, where where does the esoteric come in? What what's what would you say is the distinction between that astrology that is in that was in the popular culture and what you're focused on the esoteric astrology? Well, newspaper astrology, they if even if someone's doing it properly, they're assuming. Uh, well, I'll have to break this down. The fundamentals of a birth chart are the planets the signs which they're located in at the time of birth, and also what we call houses, which represent 12 areas of life experience. They're related to the 12 signs, and these are derived from the rising sign on the eastern horizon at the time of birth and uh, the highest point in the chart, the midheaven. And there are different techniques for drawing up these 12 pieces of pie, if you wish, 12 pieces of life experience. Now, if a newspaper astrologer is doing it properly, they're taking the sun sign of that person, let's just say it's Gemini, as the first house. And if there are planets in the heavens in different houses in the chart in relation to Gemini, they may start to talk about how the energies will affect someone's affairs. Let's just say that the sun at the time is in Virgo, so it would be in Gemini's fourth house. They might say there'll be an emphasis upon family matters on the relationship with the mother because these are fourth house affairs. And that's how that's how we, they would do it. But when one is born, uh, the sun sign is distinct from what we call the rising sign or ascendant. So it's very, very general stuff. Uh, I mean, some some astrologers are better than others, but uh, I mean, I wouldn't put too much uh, faith in uh, newspaper astrology. No. How would it work if if you were to do a, a birth chart? How how does it all work? Well, I use a different system to traditional astrology. Different planetary rulers. Each uh, the planets have an affinity with a particular sign. We call it rulership, but. The breakaway theosophist Alice Bailey gave these 12 planetary rulers called esoteric rulers, which are more fitting for life in the 21st century. And they're the ones I use. But the form of astrology I use, it's about looking at the sign on the eastern horizon at birth, giving an indication of the purpose of the soul for that incarnation. I can look at the mundane stuff as well. That can be very important to people but I'm basically looking at ways in which that person can develop and grow as a soul. Look at what in the chart's going to help that, what's going to hinder that, perhaps a suitable occupation or road to go down in terms of the purpose of the soul. And then you're looking at where the planets are in the heavens at any given time, how they're affecting the chart. Uh, it's it's an immense subject, Uh and, of course, uh, if you have a chart reading, I mean, I can only go as far as I can. It will only be as good as I am in terms of my psyche. You know, I can only bring my psyche to bear on your chart. If you went to another astrologer, 
they might tell you something a little bit different, but both would actually be correct in terms of astrological rules if they were doing it properly, but we have a different slide. I mean, it's not written in stone anyway. You know, it's uh, it's fluid. Uh, in terms of quantum physics, it's like superpositioning with astrological placements. You have different possibilities which you can express. A bit like being given a certain paint palette, really, and... Uh, you know, trying to paint something, you know, you can use different shades and accents and so on. So do you see part of, of, of your job then is more interpretation then? Very much so. Trying to trying to put the person in touch with uh, the soul, the higher self, make the person more self-aware and seek to give them guidance in that respect. Uh, yeah, that sounds really cool. <laughs> <laughs> we uh, we had David Matheson on uh, last year, November. Who's a, he's an author, astral theology on uh, astral theology. Right, and, uh, sounds interesting. Yeah, he's he's brilliant. Uh, look, hopefully, I'm again on soon. But I mean, a, a lot of the message in his work is about reconnecting to your higher self and trying yeah. to find this purpose. And I think there's there's some synergy there. Is is astral theology a part of esotericism? It's not the term I've actually came across. Uh, just breaking it down in terms of the actual meaning of that, then I, I would uh, suspect he's doing something rather similar to me, perhaps using slightly different techniques or planetary rulers. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's basically trying to he's trying to find um, analyzing myths from all over the world and then yep. associate. I love myth, yeah. My second book's on myth, yeah, Greek hero myths. <laughs> yeah, and sort of associating the common myths with certain constellations and also religious texts and trying to draw analogies. And But the, the one of the books, Astral Theology for Life, is how you actually implement this. It's all very well learned about ancient myths and how they relate to constellations, but then what? Then of course. About... Uh, I mean, myth. when we're looking at myths, we're looking at how various cultures, etc., understood what Jung called archetypes or divine ideas. In theosophy, we'd say people were seeking to understand the divine intent by anthropomorphizing certain energies, be it constellations or natural forces, etc. And uh, when we when we look at myth, because we're looking at archetypes, archetypes are relevant to creation in the evolutionary process. So if we look at a myth and its relationship to our life, if we can identify with that myth, the characters and the events relate them to our life, we gain a deeper appreciation of the relevant archetypes. Uh, right. Yeah, heady concepts again, isn't it? It's uh... Yeah, it's... Uh, <laughs> I would say approach it more as an artist than as an intellectual. But, that's, yeah, that's not hard I for mean, me. I just love <laughs> mythology because of the abstract nature of it. If I look at a myth I, or a fairy tale, you know, it's because it's pretty much the same thing. You can do it with a movie as well. Look at, so, you know, movies tend to have archetypal themes and uh, usually if the body comes off best in the end, it's, there's something within the psyche that it doesn't it doesn't gel. You say that's unresolved, you know. And uh, I think a lot of movies reflect that um, 
mythical thing as well. Uh, the great person to read about myth, in my opinion, was Joseph Campbell, the 20th century yeah. author who spoke of the hero's journey. <clears throat> and, you know, that, that stuff I'm very, very keen on, but I love fusing astrology with myth. Uh, sometimes I, when looking at a chart, I'll give the person a relevant myth, well, a, a myth that I feel is relevant to their chart, but I never force myself to do it. It's more, it just precipitates into my psyche because I don't feel it's a mechanical process doing that. So. One of the things that interests me with, with mythology, and we, we touched on it briefly with Dave, but when you look at the the correlations between different myths, so, for example, if you think of uh, Izanagi and Izanami from Japan, from Shinto, yeah. and then uh, Orpheus and Eurydice from Greece and they're so similar, what's your take on that? Do you think that there's some sort of progenitor lost civilization? Was this diffused from some previous civilization that we've forgotten about? I think there are two ways of looking at this. Yes, they could be passed on through various civilizations, cross-fertilization that occurs, and various cultures will adapt myths to suit their objectives, but... Underlying that, especially uh, in terms of the god and the goddess, etc., you know, people are describing the relationship between the transcendent and the creation within which we are involved with. The goddesses are aspects of creation. Joseph Campbell stated that the goddess holds the secrets to life, all that can be known, and. Uh, we only access those secrets when we demonstrate worthiness, i.e. through fulfilling the hero quest, which we can relate to the spiritual path. Uh, but when I start reading myths, I tend to operate on the premise that female characters are aspects of the goddess, i.e. the divine in manifestation. The monsters and ogres and villains are just aspects of one psyche that must be overcome, and these come to the surface when we tread the path, and the hero quest is related to the the spiritual quest. Uh, I mean, Odysseus, the voyages of Odysseus are, are a classic. You know, he tires of the violence of the Trojan War, wants to return to Ithaca, spirit wanting to return to its origin, and there's all these transformative adventures along the way. And eventually he, he arrives at Ithaca alone, the 12 ships have gone, it's just him. And, you know, eventually he manages uh, to reunite with his wife Penelope after overcoming the suitors that have been pursuing her. And that is the Hyrus Gamus, or sacred marriage, the unification of male and female, spirit and matter and so on, which the medieval alchemists sought to... Uh, and it's depicted in all these myths, as you say. Uh, it's funny because I'm preparing a talk for the English Theosophical Society called Theosophy and Archetypes, and I thought I'd talk about a myth briefly at the end, and I thought, don't pick one out of my book, Greek Hero Myths. So I was talking about Odin suspended on the cosmic ash, Yggdrasil, to gain the secrets of the runes, the runes being the archetypes understanding how he can use these for the benefit of humanity and the gods. And then I thought, well, this is very similar to Christ on the cross. And then it's similar to the Buddha 
of Prince Siddhartha, the Bodhi tree, uh, undergoing the temptation of Karma Mara before obtaining enlightenment, but then deciding to teach humanity. And we see these challenges in in all of the great hero myths, certainly. Similarly, creation myths, you'll see the same themes looking at different myths throughout the world, and religions, of course. Yeah, the cosmic egg is one of the popular ones, isn't it? Very much so, yeah. Yeah, it's funny how these these stories are so can be so analogous to our spiritual journey, for lack of a better word. And you know, I don't think you can. I think this is something that everyone has to find as an individual. I don't think there's any way to push anyone into this, is there? No, I, I don't think so at all. Uh, I think you've hit the proverbial nail on the head there. And uh, in terms of the spiritual path. Uh, Theosophy and related teachings would say that one awakens to spiritual meaning and the spiritual quest when they experience what is called divine unrest, where the outer world just doesn't seem to matter. What used to fascinate one, these people suddenly say, well, what what does life really mean? And eventually they awaken and then the quest begins and in most cases, one's life gets a whole lot damned harder then because uh, they've embarked upon the hero's journey, like the Grail Knight going into the Forest of Adventure. That's a classic one. You know, you have these knights who are the medieval equivalent of rock stars, but when they see that vision of the Grail, suddenly that old lifestyle doesn't mean so much and they go in quest of it. Uh, yeah, it's... Um... It's something, I don't know if there's any way of encouraging people to look at this with an open mind and an open heart and try and go away and maybe look into a few things, whatever interests them. I mean, the thing, I mean, one of the good things about esoteric stuff is there's so many different avenues to get involved, isn't there? Very much so, absolutely. Uh, I mean, in terms of one connecting with the soul and expressing its intent, I mean, I don't care whether one that, whether one achieves that through a traditional religion, esotericism, playing chess or whatever, you know, if it's meaningful and it brings the soul expression into uh, one's life, then that's fantastic. But yes, there are, we, we each have our existential psyche and we follow our own particular path. That's something... Joseph Campbell emphasized in the Grail myth that the knights entered the forest at their own chosen point where there was no previous path. And that's what happens with us. You know, I know, well, we're all guys. Certainly, I had a bit of an apprenticeship complex up till my mid 20s anyway. I used to be involved in music, etc. And you know, he always wanted to be like somebody else. And then you think, well, wait a minute, I'm Gary Kidgel. I have my own birth, <laughs> you know, for what that's worth. Uh, you know, and, and start to value one's uniqueness, not become egotistical, but say we're all here to express something. It's all part of the great planetary and solar purpose, but it's unique to us. And I feel it's the same, as you say, with religion, esotericism, and so on. People find what suits them. I mean, I, I find Buddhism a wonderful set of teachings, but it's not for my psychology. It's never really fitted. The Hindu Vedanta sort of suited me more, as did the Theosophy. I mean, they're, they're, all, uh, they're all means to an end. They're all what uh, 
Buddhists would call yanas or ferry boats designed to take one from the shore of everyday life to the shore of transcendence. But so is every spiritual system, if it's worth its salt, and it should be applicable to modern life as well. You know, that's important. Uh, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I think, I hope, you know, people listening who've, who've listened to you talk about this stuff maybe have hopefully been inspired to start looking, maybe look into these subjects and um, see if they can learn something and maybe if they haven't already um, embark on this hero's journey. <laughs> um, we're rocking up to an hour already, Gary. God, what's it's flowing there. What are you working on at the moment? Are you going to be writing any books in the future? I'm swithering on writing a new book, either on the rising signs in astrology from an esoteric point of view, or writing another myth one on the Grail legends. Oh, cool. I love, I, I love a bit of that, a bit of... Uh, I think with the Grail legends, I would... By usual uh, MOD, I would probably buy up quite a few books more recent and earlier ones, the classics, and uh, read them up, then apply my own understanding to them. But like my Greek hero myths, uh, I do say it, when reading it, my interpretations are just there to assist. It's what the myth means to the individual. I mean, my interpretations are a mix of sort of Campbell, Jung, Theosophy, and others, and what my tiny little mind can come up with every now and again, you know, but it's live the myth, you know, and the same with the path, you know, it's, it's, it's your path. It's nobody else's. That's right. Yeah. Where can, uh, where can people find you, Gary, if they want to follow your work and keep up to date? Well, I have a website, uh, Center C E N T R E D, not the American dash astrology.com. And both my books are there, and the astrology is mentioned as well. Uh, yeah, well, I'm we'll... also on Facebook if people want to friend me. Uh, I'm not on Twitter, right? Oh, you're best off not being on Twitter. At, at Facebook, uh, oh. I might, I must... <laughs> Twitter's a cesspit. You're best off, yeah, leave it alone. <laughs> I, I do think, uh, Certainly, it's very Aquarian to have this internet as a tool for communication. I mean, it's like a form of telepathy amongst people, really, but a lot of social media, I feel we're just seeing sort of astral dregs. People will just pour out anything, and someone makes a statement, then it's like a witch trial if it <laughs> doesn't occur, you know? You think, come on, guys, you know. Uh, yeah, we've often... Let's have a bit of perspective. Well, Jordan Peterson, he's been one who's been subjected uh, to that sort of thing. You know, I just think it's utterly ridiculous. Uh, yeah, as, as a means of communication, we, we've often talked about social media, and I, I have serious doubts whether it's a, a, go- a universal good or an ill. You know, I, I think it might be causing more damage than uh, the benefits. But I think you're making a very... I think it's kind of revealing a lot of flaws in the human psyche. Of course, it's being used for commercial purposes, but there's a potential for it to be used for more sinister purposes as well. And mm. humanity, the human psyche isn't that evolved. Before World War II, Carl Jung emphasised that all of the dangers are within the human psyche. And, of course, where else can they be unless you're talking about, you know, meteorites or 
climate change, etc. But I do think, like any other tool, it can be used for good or it can be used for evil. And uh, I, I do think we have to be very careful with the internet. Yeah, it's like, I said it the other week, like Solzhenitsyn said, the line between good and evil is down the middle of everyone's heart. We're all capable of of being nasty pieces of work just as much as uh, being... uh, He would know as well. I mean, uh, in principle, communism is a beautiful idea. You you know, you could relate it to uh, the fact that we're all aspects of the one divine life, but when you try and put that into practice and you get people who want to enforce that ideal on the whole world regardless. <laughs> you know, it's very, very dangerous. Well, we said we weren't going to talk about politics or football, Gary. Oh, I so. apologise, yes. <laughs> Just an example. So we'll, we'll leave it there. Just stay on the line for us, Gary, while we uh, play ourselves out. Um, okay, absolutely, guys. It's been nice meeting you all. Excellent. So I hope that conversation has been of interest and of value. Yeah, I'm sure you've inspired people to to, uh, take up the challenge and take the hero's journey. And uh, we'll put the links in the description if anyone wants to um, check out your website or find you on Facebook. That's very kind of you, Phil. Thank you very much. No problem. So uh, stay on the line for us. We'll be back in a flash. Don't touch that dial, eavesdroppers. Right, then we're back. The dwarf, the cripple, and the mother of madness. That was our chat with Gary Kidgel from Esoteric yeah. Astrology. I kid you nuts. I know, that was rubbish. Sorry, I'll take it back. <laughs> <laughs> That's good fun. I found that interesting. I like esoteric stuff. We've not done any esoteric podcasts for a while, have we? No, it was the last one. Time. Uh, George Van Ralt, maybe? Oh, Dave, yeah. Dave Matheson, yeah. maybe? Uh, if you can fit astral theology into mm. there. I think there's some, probably some links. But it should yeah. want it in. Put it in the same shoebox. Yeah. So that's good fun there. Check out the links on the website in the show notes and uh, check out Gary's work, his books. I'll put links up for everything. So if you want to check Gary's books out, the one on mythology sounds interesting. I think I'll pick that up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yes. so there's a link on his website and buy oh, it straight from there. It's quite a clean a clean website, I would say. There's not a, you know, it's easy to navigate. Good. Excellent. Right then, let's move on. Housekeeping. 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 Oh, it's an emergency. <laughs> Housekeeping. Execute order 69. Housekeeping. Oh, my word. This is a value for value podcast. If you find this podcast valuable, please consider returning some value. There are myriad ways of returning value to this podcast. Mm-hmm. iTunes reviews is a good way. Yeah. Yes. We like iTunes uh, reviews. Yeah. Send us things. Email us. Send us. Stories. Memes. Memes. Stories. Artwork. Uh, nudes. Um, anything. Guest suggestions. Be good. Guest yeah. suggestions is a good one, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, or volunteer yourself to be interviewed by the Army's Inquisition. Absolutely. If you have a story to tell. Yeah, and uh, topical news clips. If you find something interesting, funny, curious in the news, send it our way if you wish it to be amplified because uh, that's something we do in the second halves. Yeah, uh, yeah. return some value. Buy yeah, some merch. 
Go to the Amish yeah. loot chest. If you go to the, down to the show notes, you'll find a link to the Amish loot chest. Mm. If you go on there, you can find all sorts of apparel that you may find appealing. Yeah, such good quality. Yeah. Um, uh, and what's the best way of supporting the Amish Inquisition? Send us some money. Toss a coin to your witcher, oh valley of plenty. This is. Oh valley of plenty, oh. Current. Great. Toss a coin to your witcher, oh valley of plenty. I'm literally a communist. I think you're hitting, hitting the point, Phil, that, uh, <clears throat> Uh, yeah, toss us a coin. Uh, donations. You go to the armsinquisition.com and uh, find the PayPal button there or how do, how do I become a producer tab. And you can sign up for a monthly or send us a one-off. That mm. is appreciated. Because this costs yeah. money to do, believe yeah. it or not. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so we're, we're reliant on donations. So please consider retaining some value. Mm. What do we normally do after uh, donations? Uh, news. Got to thank the producers for episode 171, haven't we? Oh, oh this one. Yes, we have Name Osnodge, oh. Bolt Upright, Gav Scott, Bruce Wayner 83, Cthulhu Taint, uh, Anonymous, and everyone who bought merch this week. Thank you so much. You're so amazing in your love. They are. Yeah. So amazing. And their love. I'm literally the best mate. And it really bothers me. I've been coming to terms with the fact that I am fucking vegan. Come here, goose, you big stud. The dwarf. The currants. The grape. The homophobe. The winds. The asthma. The crop-up chunks. The number 11. The blind man. The fallen on the horizon. The cripple and the mother of... Money bickering! From hell. I don't get it, never will. Yep, thanks for your support for another week. Good to see Bolt is uh, upright again. Yes, Bolt upright. Is, I think it's his first producer credit, to be honest. Is it? So too, yeah. yeah, he sent us something this week, which I'm sure we'll get to. Well, he's, he's been present for a number of podcasts in the early days. Yeah. But, uh, guests don't get producer credit. That's just how this works. <laughs> Come on. It's double hatting. Yeah. Right, let's move on. COVID-19 news. Put on your fucking muzzle if you go to the shop. The magic vaccine. A big fat shot in the ass. From hell. Oh! You know, it's just, you know, super painful. Like a judgment day in Tamerlane. More lives this year than any other year for the past hundred years. Two million people have to die. This is such a crock of shit. This is Sonny Pickering! Who the fuck's that? Yeah, me! Toss it easy, Mab. People have got to understand vaccination is going to be, in the end, your route to liberty. Can you... So Tim Spector was on the Times radio uh, last Sunday. Ooh. Yeah, they have their own radio service going it's, all the time. That's new. It's a Radio 4 rival, isn't it? I think it's 
it might only have just started, actually. Yeah, and our producers are on it. <laughs> and providing there links. Tim Spector is the creator of the Zoe app. This mm-hmm. is the app that uh, where you, you download this app, and when you get symptoms, you register on this app, and it's used as like a symptom tracker thing. Mm. And uh, it was on the Gloria Del Piero show, which is on Sunday afternoons, I think. And um, he was being probed about <laughs> what the long-term prognosis might be on with regards to COVID restrictions. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Oh, I think I might have... Uh, just have to restart that, I think, for some reason. How, throughout the year, does that mean till December? Yeah, I, I can't see us uh, suddenly, you know, having another Cheltenham Festival uh, with no regulations again. I, I can't see us uh, having massive weddings uh, with people coming from all over the world. I think those, you know, they, for the next few years, those days are gone. Uh, and I think we... Next few years? No. He said no. We should still continue to do the easy things, uh, keeping our distance from each other in public, masks, hand, hand washing, etc. These things don't uh, cost really anything to do. And social distancing doesn't cost anything. No. Just, uh, no. Not in terms of money. No. No. Just completely dismantles your humanity, what it means <laughs> to be human, social contact with other human beings. Yeah, it don't cost out. If, if he's a scientist and he's into IT, he's quite possibly on the autistic spectrum. So <laughs> it probably isn't something that he considers important. Yeah. So. If you go to any Asian countries, actually, that's what they practice uh, every year uh, without really any major trauma. So pretty sure they're what? having pool parties in China. I'd pretty yeah, I think the only thing that they do is wear masks when they when it's hay fever season and if they have a cold. <laughs> I think we need to get used to that, and that will allow us to do the things we really want to do more easily and more readily. And I think we just need to get this mindset into people's heads that it's not an all or nothing situation, and that for us to be able to meet in groups of six outside, we've got to keep the rest of these uh, things going as well. I think it's a bit... Has no one told him about the fucking... The magic vaccine that... Hello, yeah. Isn't this supposed to save us and make us all safe? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think he's been a bit pessimistic myself. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. That was a bit of a bizarre interview. Does he have any vested interest, perchance, in lockdown continuing, if he's invented an app? Is he is he saying about lockdown continuing or just social distancing? Because as Brits, I think we're quite good at that anyway. I mean, it, we don't sit next to someone on a bus if there's a another seat available. Never use the middle urinal if you can help it. You know, there's a natural kind of innate social distancing, I think, built into us anyway. Is that all he's talking about? Just kind of continue? Or does he actually mean shut the pubs every winter? I don't know. We shall see. Mm. Yeah, there's a big difference between social distancing from strangers and your family. Mm. Uh, yeah, by force yeah. of law. <laughs> it's fucking <laughs> bizarre. It's fucking nuts. But and I don't. I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah. So the magic vaccines. I, you know, this was going to be the thing that was going to save us. Let us go back to normal. Let's get Professor Neil Ferguson's take on the vaccine oh, yeah. rollout. 
So I think the vaccine we're rolling out now will have a very major effect on deaths. With the caveat, I think we'll need to implement another vaccination program in the autumn to deal with new variants and perhaps even sooner than that. But with the levels of uptake, which are very encouraging, we're seeing in older people over 90% in the over 75s, that will, even though the vaccines are not perfect, that will still have a very major impact. It's not going to allow us to go completely back to normal, um, certainly not until the autumn. And I suspect there will be new things we can't predict precisely, like the waning of immunity, like new variants coming up, which means there will be some residual need to maintain some social distancing, mask wearing, probably for much of this year. But as vaccine manufacturing capacity gets ever greater, and as we update the vaccines and get ever more effective vaccines, I'm hoping that by next time, next, this time next year, it will look a lot more normal. Maybe there'll still be mask wearing for mass gatherings and things like that, but we certainly, I very much doubt, will be anything like where we are now. Mm. Yeah, just an another year, and it should it's look insane. a bit more normal. This is crazy. Why has anyone listened to this this guy still? I know. I, Wasn't he be, publicly it, shamed? <laughs> yeah, this is the thing, isn't it? It seems that he was kind of... He went quiet, didn't he? He was obviously managed, stays managed out. Let, him, public let it blow over. For a few months, and he's come back again, hasn't he? Well, people still listen to that guy who said vaccines give you autism, even now, and that was, what, 20 years ago when he was yeah. properly... Is you know, he uh, is he a member of Spy M and advising the government? Is that like MI six? <laughs> Spy M. Um, I've, no, no, no. I think is he dead? No, he's not dead. The government is Andrew, still listening to this guy. You know, someone. Can't remember I, his name. I don't think it's a fair analogy. <laughs> you know, that's all, that's the point I'm getting, getting at. This guy is feeding into the government's policy, policy. decisions. Mm. Well, is he that is is on the advisory group, right? Spy him, yeah. That feeds into Sage. Right. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. There's a lot of groups. <laughs> there is, yeah. Sticking with Sage and sticking with vaccines. Uh, we talked a bit last week, didn't we, about vaccines and vaccine hesitancy. And uh, Ben, um, you said it was a bit. I think I'm paraphrasing, but you, you, I think you would it be fair to say you're of the opinion that it's maybe a bit daft giving it to everyone. Um, unnecessary, perhaps. Unnecessary. Um, and your sort of vaccine hesitancy started when it comes to giving it to your daughter. Yeah. Right. Let me put your mind at rest because <laughs> this is uh, Professor John Edmonds, who's on the Sage Committee. Speaking Did he used to have a house party? That's Noel Edmonds. Oh, this is uh, John Edmonds. He's a scientific advisor to the government. Ah, right, OK. And so do you have a sense at the moment of over what kind of timescale it would be prudent to phase a return to normal? It's to do with how fast you vaccinate people. So um, that's really the rate-limiting factor... Um, so the faster we vaccinate the high-risk groups, the better, uh, so the quicker we can ease up. 
And eventually then we're going to switch to vaccinating lower risk groups, um, adults, working age adults, and hopefully children. Um, and then we will really have an impact on transmission. At the moment, we're vaccinating the elderly who don't play a great role in transmission. They tend to be at the end of transmission chains. They're not in the middle of them. Sorry, that must have been the wrong clip. Sorry. That won't alleviate, alleviate your hesitancy, I don't think, will it? I don't know. At what point does it stop becoming about um, saving lives and more about selling vaccines? I think we're well past that point, mate. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Who's a professor work for? Uh, I, I forget which, which university is attached which to. uni? Well, they all are. They're all attached to a uni. They're not employed by um, private companies, I don't think. But he's, wow. he's one of the epidemiologists on Sage. Right. Goes on to some uh, good old-fashioned fear-mongering. <laughs> But, it, but, um, if, but but if we got to that stage of, as I say, the top nine groups all having had, let's say, a first dose or maybe first and second dose, um, at that point, how dangerous, as I say, would it be at that point to allow essentially a return to normal that would undoubtedly see the virus spreading among younger people? So the scenario is that everyone who's in a vulnerable group and over 70 has had two doses fully vaccinated. Can we then start... Unlocking things. Well, I still think you would get. A, you would then start to get a lot of cases in vaccine failures. So, right. if the vaccine is ninety um, percent protective, let's say, mm. and that would be very good, um, and we vaccinate ninety percent of people, and that would be very good, uh, then uh, so of the high risk people, um, then that actually leaves. If you take, multiply 0. 0.9 by 0. 0.9, you get 0. 0.81. So you've actually protected 81% of the population, leaving almost 20% who are not protected. And so you would have still, under those very optimistic scenario uh, situation, you would still have roughly 20% of the highest risk group unprotected. And uh, so if you let it rip, they would get infected very rapidly and soon be filling up your hospitals and unfortunately your morgues. I thought I thought you needed like fifty percent or something to have herd immunity. Sixty ish. So what's he saying? I don't think he knows. <laughs> Who is it? Professor <laughs> Professor John Edmonds. Oh Who, yeah, the houseback guy, Mr. Blobby. Yeah. He's he's, he's on TV every week. He's, he's is like, he? yeah. What's he gonna do when all this is over and, and news aren't calling him every week? Well, maybe that's why he's he's putting some of his prime acting skills to the the fore. Yeah, he's got to work on that book deal probably as well, hasn't he? I'm sure he'll have a book coming out. Yeah. Yeah, so it seems like... I don't know. I mean, it sounds like he's going for a zero COVID policy sort of thing. Well, yeah. I don't know. We don't have a zero flu policy, do we? No. No, I mean, that's why Peston... Preston asked the question. We've vaccinated everyone who's vulnerable. Well, this is the thing. I've just been thinking um, more over the last few weeks or week or so. I'm just wondering if this is going to go on for a number of years in a similar way that sort of, you know, Spanish flu that everyone kind of refers back to. It kind of petered out after about four years when everyone had died that was going to die from it and immunity was there. 
whether something similar is going to happen with this, but with us having to socially distance for years, four or five years until that exactly the same thing's achieved. Um, but with all the consequences of lockdowns and socially distancing everyone. I mean, the government must be staggered with how placidly we've taken this. They must be absolutely staggered. Yeah, but people are scared, aren't they? People are still scared. A lot are. Mm -hmm. I was was talking to her. I I was working with a plasterer this week. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He was sort of uh, talking a bit about COVID, and I could tell he was trying to gauge where I was on the subject. (laughs) You know, how far do I push it sort of thing. Mm. And uh, I sort of intimated that I thought maybe we'd sort of maybe overreacted a bit. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, yeah, totally, totally overreacted. Let him get it, let him die, and let's get on with it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I would have thought a plasterer might be in a vulnerable group with all that gypsum going into his <laughs> fucking lungs every day. Uh, he lives with his mum and dad, who <laughs> are both over 70. <laughs> Oh shit! No mass. No shit's given. He said. He said like I've I've worked I've worked the ra- all the way through. I've not taken any time off. I've been right. in I've been in hundreds of houses. No mass. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> How come I ain't got it? Yeah. Uh, oh, I don't know. I don't know. He may have had it. That's the thing. Well, this is what I, I said. Well, I think I had it in December nineteen. I had a bad cough for about four weeks. That I couldn't shift. Mm-hmm. And he said the same thing. So I don't know. Maybe because we're in dozens of houses every week, we'd be the first to get it. Maybe. Before, you know, before the pandemic officially started, when they started testing people and counting numbers and mm-hmm. the Totelegram or whatever it's called, the Totalizer. Totalizer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, let's uh, finish Edmunds off. <laughs> Professor Nolash. Professor Noel Admins. Professor Vague. When are, when are the restrictions going to end, Professor Vague? Uh, yes, I think we're going to have to be uh, under some restrictions for some time. Again, it, it depends on the rapidity of the vaccine rollout. If you think about what the government has said, their ambition is to offer all adults uh, a vaccine dose by September, I think. Mm. Um, but, you know, we the, the second dose uh, for the uh, is being offered, certainly for the AstraZeneca, it looks like it's better to give it after about... Uh, three months, so you would, we would be getting our second bit of made-up science on the fly. There, the old three-month AstraZeneca stuff, isn't it? Yeah, that's nonsense. Dose, um, you know, adults would be getting our second dose. You know, in in the late autumn, yeah. Um, you know, or the, the autumn, let's say. Uh, so I think we've got a long way to go in order to protect our entire population. And that's not including vaccinating children as well, of course. So I, I think that we will have to be under some sort of restrictions for some time, unfortunately. Yeah. Yep. They're coming for your kids. They with the old jabby jab. It's only a matter of time. All those kids that they can sell to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Pointless. Well, let's hope that they don't sort of say, well, you know, if your kids want to go to school, they have to be vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Because that does happen in some countries. Does it? Yeah. Or maybe some states, rather, maybe in America. Right, okay. Maybe. Public schools, anyway. Right. Yeah. People are going to have to figure out where their line in the sand is with all Mm. this. 
because otherwise it's mm. going to sneak up, sneak up on you. Anyway, food for food, uh, food, 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 food for third, food for third. Should we move on to happier things? Oh. Guys, yes, please. <laughs> uh, the BBC's Laura Koonsberg this week summed up the feelings of the nation. Um, this is after Bojo the Clown deftly avoided one of her questions in one of the uh, <laughs> press briefings this week. The measure we need to keep on top of it and need to keep testing um, the vaccine effects in, the, in this situation. But the very key thing, the thing that we have to do, is get numbers down. The lower you get numbers, the lower the chance of getting more mutations. Thank you. Uh, Tom Clark, ITV News. Oh, it didn't answer the question. Uh, <laughs> Say it again. Oh, it didn't answer the question. Uh, <laughs> it didn't answer the Brilliant. question. Uh, sounds like a moaning Hot. teenager. <laughs> Hot mic. <laughs> <laughs> she forgot the old, uh, is it double space bar to mute on Zoom? Bold, bold space. You don't think she's taking him off there with his bumbling... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe, she is, yeah. Isn't she? Didn't answer the question. Uh, oh, my God, that's excellent. <laughs> the thing that fucking shocks me is she's one of the primary political journalists at the BBC. Has she not a, figured out... Has she not figured out yet that politicians are there to not answer questions directly? Oh God! You know what does she? What does she expect? He's not. Uh, he's not answered the question. Uh, well, yeah, that's his job. This is. I this think is. She's done it on purpose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably. Uh, there was another good news says COVID story this week. You must have heard of this one. <clears throat> oh, the miracle of COVID making front-page news just days before her 117th birthday. Sister Andre taking a well-earned rest, now well on the way to recovery after fighting off the coronavirus. Speaking to a staff member at her retirement home, she said she didn't feel a thing and wasn't scared. I'm not afraid to die, she says. I'm happy to be with you. God hasn't taken me yet. Born in 1904 as Lucille Randon, she... We need something. If you want to interrupt a clip, we need to do something like... You have to oh, shout stop like, or something. Hang on. Like this. What are you doing? Uh, <laughs> clapping. <laughs> clapping emoji. Just say stop. I can't get rid of it. What were you, what were you saying? I bet you've forgotten stop, now. Stop. No, I just I made a pithy comment about it being Laura Koonsberg in the background. There was some groaning. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was uh, Sister Ancient... Andre. Sister Andre. Peter's mum. He's lived through two world wars, Spanish flu, and even the invention of plastic, becoming the oldest person in Europe and second oldest in the world. So unsurprisingly, she's taking the current pandemic in her stride. It will come and go, she says. It will pass like everything else. That's an optimistic message, isn't it? It will come and go... Un petit peu. It's a bit. A little bit. Monge too, Rodney. Monge too. Come see, come sir. Yeah. Tony's a twat. Tony's a ghost. Yeah. 116. But the thing is with her, linking back to vitamin D, is she lives in the south of France. 
stuff. Oh, right. So yeah. they probably just like, she's probably wheeled out in the sun most of the day. Yeah, and do, do, don't nuns in convents famously, and I get all my knowledge of nuns from the Sister Act films, <laughs> don't nuns in convents like sort of work the land and the garden all the time? I don't know. I, I imagine they work, yeah. I imagine they're outside quite a lot. That's more like a monastery. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. More monastic than nonastic. <sighs> yeah. I don't know what nuns do, to be honest with you, other than beat up kids in schools. <laughs> just for um, 116, she's 117 now. I've just, yeah. I've got a few stats here just for... Uh, <laughs> Just for your curiosity. Stato! <laughs> she was eight, year, eight years old when the Titanic sank. Yeah. She was ten years old at the start of World War I. Mm-hmm. And she was 41 at the end of World War Two. I passed that's it at the end of World War Two. Yeah, that's, that's how old she That's a rough time to have your, uh, your formative years, isn't it? Holy how, shit. Did, how old is the oldest person in the world at the moment? If she's 170, fuck. I, I probably should have looked that up, shouldn't I? 117. Yeah. God, I hope I don't live to 117. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be all right if you re- if you like stopped aging at I don't know now or earlier than now. Exactly. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Do you not I feel your she... your peak fitness, Ben? I think I am, yeah. yeah. Ben, ben has peaked, hasn't he? <laughs> certainly because I've been working at it. Well, exactly. Jeez. The hero's journey. Um, <laughs> but she's blind, isn't she? She's in a wheelchair. Yeah. It's just mm. like, you know. What's the point? Yeah. Fine, you can just go around rolling over people's toes. Gonna... <laughs> I don't think she can even wheel the wheelchair, to be honest with you. Well, maybe it's her faith. Maybe her faith is something that, that keeps her keeps her she's going. Keep, she should live forever then. Who knows? I mean... Um, uh, sorry, Tom? No, I was just going to say, you know, I think it's different if you're able to do the things that you enjoy still. Um, but I think it's different if that's all taken away. I think it would become torture. Yes, yeah, the famous, well, it's not famous, but if you think of someone who's, say, a concert pianist, mm-hmm. and they've spent their entire life playing playing the piano, and that's their, their love, and then they finally <laughs> get to that age where the body starts breaking down, and they can't do what they used to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a test, isn't it? That's a test of your... Definitely is, yeah. ...your psychological metal. Mm-hmm. How do you navigate that? This is why things like, Theosophy and studying myths can prepare you for that. And mm. you will look on, you'll find other things. Maybe you'll try and, I don't know, I'm talking uh, hippy-dippy nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> but she was, uh, average life expectancy in this country is 82. Yeah. Right, we're 37, 38. Mm. She reached average life expectancy when we were two years old. <laughs> and just kept on going. Fuck it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, a nice story. And she was there for the invention of plastic. <laughs> yeah. There's been some uh, some serious cancellations this week. Let's start with Bill Michael, who's the chairman of KPMG. 
Oh, yeah. The, uh, the accountants. <laughs> yeah, the accountancy yeah. firm, worldwide, global. Accountancy firm uh, is not a fan of unconscious bias training, and this is why yeah. I got sacked. Which is rich, it's helpful. And now is the time to say, well, do you care enough? Right? I don't think uh, this point of, uh, what do you call it, unconscious bias? Mm. I think unconscious bias has been complete crap. Complete and utter crap for years. There is no such thing as unconscious bias. Uh, I don't buy it. Uh, or if you, if you think, because after every single unconscious bias training that's ever been done, nothing's ever improved. So unless you care, you actually won't change. Uh, and I think there's a lot more care, uh, more generally to change. And we are in a very lucky sector. He makes a good point though, that, because by nature of it being unconscious, you can't affect it. You can't, even if you, if you, by by the fact that it, it it exists, and there have been experiments to show that it is a thing that people mm-hmm. do unconscious bias. Mm-hmm. The nature, the fact that the nature that it is unconscious means that you have no control over it. And so, Isn't it makes that what the training is for though. It, it brings it into the conscious, so you think about it and go, "Oh, hang on, let me rewind." Yeah, but he makes the point that you have to care to yeah, start with, which is not unconscious. Exactly. That's all. So un- unconscious bias training isn't going to help people that don't care anyway. No, but it helps the ones who do care. Yeah, but the people who care, care anyway. So their unconscious bias isn't going to count for anything. Because they don't have well, conscious maybe. bias. Well, the thing is about unconscious things is um, another way of thinking of, of the unconscious is thinking about schema. And it's very hard to change a schema, um, but it's not impossible. But yeah, it, but the point he was making is true. You know, if you don't care, if you're a racist anyway, you're not going to be made not racist by going on uh, unconscious bias training. Jordan Peterson's made the point numerous times that when they've done unconscious bias training, it creates no effect. It doesn't work. Yeah, they're probably the reason why is what that guy's just said. Mm. But obviously, you can't say that. So the chairman well, can't say that unconscious. Yeah, yeah. He's the chairman he's, of KPMG, and uh, he's had to resign, which is cool. Wow. Yeah. He went on to say this in the same thing. Take as much influence of your own diary, of your own life, of whatever, because uh, I have spoken to a lot of partners and, and people at all sorts of levels where it almost feels like this is being done to them. Well, you can't play the role of victim unless you're sick. And I hope you're not sick. And you're not ill, and if you're not, take control of your life. Don't uh, don't sit there and moan about it. Quite frankly, what's he saying? Less that's less controversial. He's, he's trying to say yeah. sort of don't be a victim. Sort of you know, he's sort of okay. he's suggesting that, that personal well personal responsibility. Take responsibility for your own actions and your own circumstances. Wallowing wallowing in a pity of of victimhood isn't going to get you anywhere. No, No. Um, but, but, you know, that's millennials for you, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Um, You have agency, millennials. You can affect change in your own lives by changing what you do. Mm. I mean, there are things in your life that you can't affect. The only thing you can control are the things that are within your sphere of influence, aren't they? And how yeah, the course. most important thing is how you react. The one thing that you always have control of is your reaction mm-hmm. to external influences. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's 
what I would take away from that. Not from except, what he said. <laughs> except when the doctor whacks you on the knee with that funny hammer. Yeah. Yeah. Reflexes. That's an involuntary reaction, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, anyway. True, though, you know, pull yourselves up by the bootstraps. I mean, the the problem is, is that people start at different levels, don't they? And this is the where the historic injustice comes in, in that certain, this is the argument, certain demographics start with a certain level. Mm-hmm. They have more is- to overcome, don't they? But yeah. the problem is is when they try and divide this by things like racial lines is where I have a problem with it. Because yes. it's not ex- it's not an exclusive thing. You know, you have very privileged Asian kids, for example, mm-hmm. who maybe have less challenges in their early life than a lot of poor working class white kids. And I don't like using the terms white and Asian, but we're forced to do it when we talk about these things. It's, yeah, uh, it's true, isn't it? Yeah, it's not a, a one-dimensional thing. No, there's multiple layers of you being shat on, isn't there? <laughs> you know, there is. Why, so, yeah. why single out one against the other? You know, mm. it's, it just divides us. Bit, mm. That's the problem with it. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, sticking with cancel culture, or uh, <laughs> okay. uh, what did I say then? Culture. <laughs> Or, uh, or... Oh, we were just talking about the unconscious, weren't we? <laughs> <laughs> our buddy Malin Baker from the Malin Baker Show on YouTube. Oh, He's done a little yeah. uh, a little rundown this week of people who've been cancelled, particularly focusing on San Francisco. You might right. not have heard of these cancellations this week. Now, maybe calling such a thing out will get me cancelled. Goodness knows, I would be in distinguished company this week. The San Francisco Schools Board is renaming schools that were named after George Washington, as was sadly too ordinary at the time. He was a slave owner. I mean, he also did some extraordinary things as well, by the standards of his time and indeed by ours. But, you know, details. So George Washington's been cancelled. Some schools that is named after are being renamed. The founder of the United States. <laughs> That's the way it's going, isn't it? It gets okay. better. Who's next on the chopping block? Not Schwarzenegger. Good old Abe. No. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln. Uh, slave liberator. But, well, you know, didn't attend classes on critical race theory or something. What's he been cancelled for? Abe. It's, I don't know. The guy who, who made the Emancipation Proclamation has been cancelled by the woke San Francisco school board. Oh, fuck me. He's not woke <laughs> enough. The guy who freed the slaves is not woke enough to have a school named after him. Right. Next. <laughs> Captain Cook, who has two museums now considered to be problematical. According to Black Lives Matter, Cook invaded Australia and New Zealand and murdered lots of people. Which isn't what happened, but, ugh, details. Captain Cook. Did he actually... He he landed there, didn't he? But he didn't stay and murderise everybody, did he? He just fucking mapped it and then fucked off again, didn't he? And ate all the, the giant turtles. 
Yeah, you know, it's like a standard trip in whatever it was. Was it 1700s, 1800s or something? Yeah, we don't worry about details. Cancelled. Okay, good. Next. Oh, you you will have heard of this one, I'm sure. And even uber-liberal... Oh, no, not this one. Next one. (laughs) Diane Feinstein, who in 1984, when she was mayor of San Francisco, she allegedly allowed a Confederate flag to fly among a large display of other flags. A protester pulled it down, and they allege that she put it back. She says she didn't put it back, but you shouldn't believe what racists say, so... Also this week, we have actress Gina Carano, who's been playing a blinder as the character Cara Dune in Disney's The Mandalorian. Mm. Apparently she... Playing a blinder? She's a terrible actress. (laughs) Oh, I think you're being... She's awful. (laughs) I think you're being unfair. I just think she's she's rubbish in it, but carry on. You think she's a bit wooden? She's awful, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She's a horrible actor. Well... Whatever your opinion of her acting is, that isn't why she's been fired. No, I know, yeah, but it should have been. (laughs) (laughs) Tweeted a perfectly valid point that political evil starts with a process whereby people start of demonising an outgroup. She did so with a comparison to Jews and Nazis, of course, and if you're on the right, which unusually for Hollywood she is, that's the sort of thing that can get you cancelled. Disney sacked her, her agent sacked her. Yeah, she's uh, she's gone. Mm-hmm. She's been almost. It's almost like the McCarthy era, then, isn't it? It is. It is modern McCarthyism um, on Twitter, and yeah, she she'll never work again. I bet now. I don't. Yeah, I mean, well, either way, her options are going to be severely restricted. Mm. I'm sure she will work again, but her career was on the up and up, weren't it? I mean, Mandalorian is the. Probably the biggest success that Disney has come up with yeah. since they took over Star Wars. There's a spin-off, the like the New Republicans. That I guess she would have been a shoo-in for the lead for that. You'd have loved that, Matt. <laughs> lead role in <laughs> a spin-off series. No, yeah, I, yeah, it's not right, is it? I mean, I think, <laughs> I think I said, you know. I think once you start referencing Nazi Germany in making a point, um, you're always on <laughs> thin ice in on the internet yeah. and life generally. Well, um, there's no, there's no nuance there. That's the but, thing. The point she's making yeah. is that Hitler turned the population to to yeah. hate a certain demographic, mm-hmm. and she draw the analogy that this is where things. This is how it starts. And yeah. this is where it can lead to. But she's on the right. You know, uh, who's the guy who plays uh, Prince Oberon? The, Pablo the Man- Picasso. What's his name? The Mandalorian. I can't remember his name. Oh, Ped, uh, Pedro Pascal. Please. That's Pedro it, Pedro Pascal, Pascal yeah. He, he, he tweeted or Instagrammed a photo, and it was the kids at the border control in america in cages next to uh jewish kids in nazi germany in cages <laughs> okay He's... so so everyone goes right are you going to fire the mandalorian as well mm. maybe it was about the acting <laughs> <laughs> oh i'll tell you who's not happy about this D- disney decision and it's my go-to guy whenever i want to hear about pop culture and the homogenization of pop culture, you know who I go to? 
Terry Christian. Dicta von Doomcock. I have just received word of a development that has enraged me, saddened me, and smashed my optimism for Star Wars moving forward. Just a few minutes ago, I got a message informing me that Gina Carano has been fired from Star Wars. Indeed, she has been fired from all Lucasfilm projects moving forward. I'm going to go ahead and present you with the news as I received it, and then I'll try to share my thoughts on this matter because this is bigger than just Star Wars. This has to do with cancel culture, with freedom of speech, and the corporate homogenization of our public discourse. I'd highly recommend it. It's a very thoughtful vic- uh, Victor, <laughs> a very thoughtful video from Dicta von Doomcock about the the uh, the car situation. It's true, though, isn't it? If you don't, if we <laughs> things are going to have to correct themselves soon, otherwise they're going to become ever more polarized. Yeah, like, I wonder where this correction will come from. Don't know. Space. Joe Biden. Oh, we'll get on to Joe. <laughs> we've we've left him alone for a few weeks, the old honeymoon period, while well, he's inaugurated, but <laughs> we kept him quiet, didn't they? So he could have a big sleep before he yeah. had to go and do some work. Yeah, we need to catch up with creepy uncle Joe. <laughs> oh, no. I've got some clips. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, have we heard about Brighton and Sussex University Hospitals NHS Trust? <laughs> I can't yes. remember. Have you been? Yeah, what, yeah. what have you heard? I, uh, I heard something about um, um, kind of breaking down gender boundaries when discussing uh, <laughs> things like oh. mother. Am I allowed to say motherhood? No. Oh, uh, per, uh, birthing parenthood. I there believe the term mother has been replaced by birthing parent. Is that right? Uh, breastfeeding has been replaced by chest feeding. Which I have no idea what that is. Uh, <laughs> yes, you're... you dinosaur, Ben. Uh, you nailed it. Let's uh, let's hear uh, let's hear what Ben Shapiro had to say on it briefly. Well, our society uh, may be in trouble, and I speak about Western civilization more broadly. According to the Times of the UK, midwives in a place called Brighton have been told to say chest feeding instead of breastfeeding. And to replace the term mother with mother or birthing parent as part of moves to be more trans-friendly. Brighton and Sussex University Hospital's NHS Trust is the first in the country to formally implement a gender-inclusive language policy for its maternity services department, which will now be known as perinatal services because men can have babies too through their urethras or their butts or something. Oh, fuck. Can you slip up there and say midwives? Because <laughs> that seems like a wrong term. Should it be mid people? Yeah. Yeah, I wonder what the term, what they're going to change midwife to. Mid spouse? Um, yeah, well, what if you're a male mid. Are you called a male midwife? If you're a, I think so. Um, oh, yeah. It's called a, a midman. Mid husband. No, yes, a midwife. Is it a male midwife? A male midwife, yeah. Okay. Mm. Right. I, don't, I don't think any trans person has requested this. It sounds something someone has written something on a piece of paper in a meeting, and it's become something much bigger. I don't know. It in- seems it seems odd. Is it interesting that it's Brighton. Well, uh, you saying because by the sea? 
they have a, a, a population of LGBTQX. No, I wasn't going that way. I was going the way that the, the, the nutty leftists. Oh, right. Okay. They're the only oh, that... constituency that's had a... It was Caroline, Caroline Lucas, green. isn't it? Green, green party, they, yeah. They always vote green. They have done for decades. They're just a bit nutty down there, aren't they? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Well, it's, it seems like an odd move for, for me, being an old dinosaur or whatever. It seems. It does seem strange. It doesn't seem like something anyone would have requested, whether they're trans or not. Well, Ben, you're doing yourself a disservice. You're calling yourself an old dinosaur. Even people like George Galloway are embracing this. <laughs> Listen, I need to be quick because my wife has to go and chest feed my six-month-old baby. She is the birthing parent of my little baby. This transmania has gone far enough. We let the mask slip there at the end, I think. Mm. I've not heard that term before, transmania. I'd like to see Transylvania used in a <laughs> in a different way to uh, to the old Bram Stokerism, but I, I can't shoot it in anyway. I can't imagine it actually being used. Doesn't George Galloway identify as a cat anyway? God, he's a freak, isn't he? I bet he's a fucking vegan. Fucking vegan. Fucking vegan. <laughs> I don't know. Well, yeah, it seemed bizarre, and I think every, every um, I think I saw it on LBC. <clears throat> But every report I've I've seen about it has been, this is nuts. I've not seen anything saying this is a fantastic thing for, for um, you know, human rights and and uh, equality and and that. But maybe I'm not looking in the right places. I don't think you are. You know what I think you are, Ben. Fuck! I know what you think I am. He's a homophobe, <laughs> and he's a misogynist. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> No. Oh, or a vegan Ben you just need to wake up oh, I'm so tired I, I don't woke. see the point you got a sore leg well, this I've will, got a sore leg this will, this will wake you up uh, Kate Garraway from Good Morning Britain was uh, she shocked the nation this week with revelations about her milkman uh, Mick, my milkman, who has just been amazing. He's absolutely just kept me going because he'll leave little notes saying, do you need anything extra other than the milk? You know, like, <laughs> sort of... <laughs> I mean, like bread, oh, yeah. butter yeah. or orange juice. Yeah. And he also yeah. supplies. Yeah. The extra. Uh, he needs a little smiley face. <laughs> I bet he does. <laughs> <laughs> and you still answer at the door when you're dressing gown and those fluffy slippers. And a shower cap. Well, that was far too much laughter for Phil. Should she say milk person anyway? She mm. should, yeah. The milking parent. Yeah, they shouldn't really assume the gender, really. Well, I suppose milk. she knows her milkman, so she can call him a milkman. Actually, only if she's checked and has consent. Yeah, she yeah. can then. Uh, yeah, he might not identify as a milkman. He might be a lactate <laughs> um, dispenser. <laughs> <laughs> a lactate <Strippy> delivery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Would uh, Would anyone like to hear David Beckham speak Cantonese? No. <laughs> <laughs> Tough. Xin Chuan Kuai Le, Chao Bei Ge Da Jia, Ba Nian Le. Big cards like this in front of him. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if he's. Hang on, let's hear it again. Xin Chuan Kuai Le, Chao Bei Ge Da Jia, Ba Nian Le. I I think he might be speaking Hun. Chisa, Picha, Wangi Chubaka. He just needed the soundtrack, didn't he? Yeah. Oh, he'd, um, do out, he'd do out for a few few Bob that guy, won't he? <laughs> it, I, just on a side note, just listening to that language, it's so different to mm. European language. You just I can't get my head around how that means something. Well, all our languages are descended from Indo-European, aren't they? Mm, Apart from, there's an odd one in Europe. Is it like... Is it not Polish? Somewhere in Eastern Europe, there is like one. I don't think it's a main language. I think it's quite a small one. It's not all acrylic ones, is it? Quite unique in that it doesn't descend from the traditional Indo-European sources. Right. I don't know. Mm. There you go. Well, I teased it earlier. Shall we get to Creepy Uncle Joe? Yeah. It's time. We've lost track of him, haven't we? With all the excitement, with all the Rona and stuff. Mm-hmm. Did you watch the inauguration? No. <laughs> I, I watched a bit of it. That's right. Was uh, Lady Gaga on? Yeah, she was. Yeah, so Lady Gaga. She had a gold microphone. Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga. What did she sing? The national anthem. Did she? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Not of America. Uh, yeah, America. <laughs> <laughs> the Radiohead uh, album track. I <laughs> <laughs> mm. oh, missed the inauguration, but it's been uh, it's been creeping onto media over the last couple of weeks, and we sort of lost track. Um, from this clip, I don't think his vaccination policy... It doesn't sound very ambitious. And the order, and and, and that increases the total vaccine order in the United States by 50%, from 400 million order to 600 million. This is enough vaccine to fully vaccinate 300 Americans. 300? (laughs) 300? It just folks, isn't he? There's, there's like 330 million of them, and they only want to do 300. He's going to vaccinate each person a million times. <laughs> 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 oh, anyway, uh, he decided <laughs> he decided to clear up once and for all. You know, there's been all this controversy about the bailout money, and they've been wrangling in in Congress to try and get this deal done to 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 give out checks to the American citizens. Is this going to happen again? The stimulus checks, that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah. I, I, I thought it, it, it did not happen once already, like for six weeks or something. You, every Maybe American. like early last year or something. That's what I mean, yeah. Yeah, and they've been, they've been arguing over it, and it's like, who's going to be, how much is it going to be? Who's going to mm. be entitled Eligible. to it? Mm-hmm. Eligible. A better word. How's it going to work? And thank God he came out and, and cleared it up for us. 
But if you're a two, if you're two, uh, uh, if you're a family that's a two uh, wage earner, each of the parents, one making 30 grand, one making 40 or 50, maybe that's a little more than. Well, yeah, they need the money. Yeah, there you go. Make of that what you will. Uh, yeah, pretty pretty coherent. <laughs> <again now. laughs> Oh dear. It just feels like elder abuse, doesn't it? Playing these clips. <clears throat> has, any, has any of you actually watched any news? Because <laughs> I haven't I've stopped watching it, but I just haven't seen him in the media. Really. They can't, because he can't talk. <laughs> That's what I mean. Fuck. I mean, I'm not eloquent, but I'm not trying to be the most powerful man in the world. Exactly, yeah. <sighs> Why not? Try harder. <laughs> anyway, I got the last one from Uncle Joe. Uh, he's on board with us here, you know, when it comes to treating people as individuals, regardless of colour, creed, lifestyle, class, whatever. What's you it? Judge, judge a man not by his colour, but by the contents of his character, as MLK mm-hmm. famously said. Mm-hmm. And uh, Joe's with us, I think, on this one. People don't make a distinction. As you well know, when a South Korean and, a, and someone from Beijing, they make no distinction. It's Asia. Yeah, just call them Asians. Doesn't matter where they're from, Beijing, South Korea, Japan. Just call them Asians. Yeah, man. Yeah. Our men and our women. Yeah. Citizens of Earth. Mm, this is Korgon. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I burnt through them as quick as I could. That was quite good. Well done. Good, good effort. I went to see oh, a yeah. I went to see a dog today. Oh, was oh. it Zeus? It was Zeus. What was he like? like? Um, a little bit taller than our last dog. Oh, I thought yeah. you were going to open the door, and there he there he was coming in. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's a serious decision adopting a yeah. dog. It needs you need to sleep on it. And he's a fucking tank. He's a tank? <laughs> a fucking tank. How big is he? Well, it's only slightly taller than last dog, mm-hmm. but probably twice as big. Fuck, really? Yeah. And what kind of dog do you think it was? Is like Some sort of demon. <laughs> Cerberus. Does he seem quite friendly? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very friendly. They call him the Cuddle Monster at the charity because okay. mm. he likes to be cuddled. Mm-hmm. And he's, yeah, he's a big boy, so it's going to require some thought because my main concern is I'm not going to be the one walking him all the time and he's incredibly strong. Mm-hmm. Price of dog food. <laughs> you what? Your dog food bill will go through the roof as well if he's massive. Dog food's cheap. Wide. <laughs> dog food's cheap. I don't care. Do the kids know you've been to see a dog or not? Oh, we all had to go because oh, right, okay. you want to make sure, you want to introduce him to the kids, see how he reacts, and mm-hmm. it's a family decision. Mm-hmm. In fact, we're having our, me and the missus were having our Valentine's meal, mm-hmm. trying not to be interrupted by the two <laughs> rats. <laughs> and, uh, our, our youngest one came in with his ice cream and M&Ms for a special dessert. And uh, we were talking about the dog, what we were going to do in that. And the missus said to him, 
um, what do you think of Zeus? And he went, I like him. He's big and he's hairy. <laughs> and uh, the missus went, were you not scared of him? And he went, no, I wasn't scared of him. He's two and I'm five. <laughs> well, yeah. It's a good way of thinking about it. Yeah. Whereas... Yeah, so we're going to sleep on it and think about, make a decision tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I think it's great. No. Best dog since sliced bread. And, you know, <laughs> sliced bread was a brilliant dog. So That's a great name for a dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Mm. Ooh, dogs. Well, we don't know his history, you see. No, didn't his owner die in suspicious circumstances? <laughs> Do you know, I was thinking before, like, with our our, our old dog, it was a bull mastiff cross. I think if it came down to it and the dog turned and it was me or her, <laughs> I would be able to kill the dog <laughs> if required. And I was thinking today that uh, would not. <laughs> this, this dog would kill me. I wouldn't stand a chance. How Do you know the, think the best weighed? technique to kill an attacking dog? <laughs> Finger up the asshole. Nope. Top of the mouth. Best. Top of the mouth. Dogs dogs' legs aren't designed to go outwards. Uh, if you uh, if you uh, if you put your hand in the roof of the mouth, they can't bite down. Oh. That's alligators, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> How much does he weigh? Cara was the bull mastiff cross and her heaviest was thirty kilos. So Ooh, okay. he looks about double that. Oh, fuck. About 50, 55. Does it maybe. look overweight or is it just muscle? I saw the photos and I thought he could lose a bit of timber, this lad. But mm-hmm. on inspection, no. He's just <laughs> rippling. <laughs> He's just ginormous. My God. Ginormous. We're going to have to buy a bigger shovel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah flamethrower or something. Just incinerate everything. It's not set in stone, you know. We'll, uh, if it just, well, just as a side note, how many dogs were in the shelter? The full, the full really? at the minute. Oh, that's because like you sort of getting a lot of reports that even the shelters were sort of. I think they've got. Empty. I think they've got eleven in or twelve in. Right. One's a Great Dane. Mm. Fuck. Yeah. Very normal dogs. Uh, not weapons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure they have, yeah. yeah. Um, I'll send you the link. I won't say mm. on here, but I'll send you the link. They only have a couple up on the website, though, for some reason. Right. Um, but, yeah, I'll send you the link. We'll see. This time next week, we might have a little puppy in here. Oof. Oh, would you have it? I don't think there's room in here, really, for him. No. So, yes. It's it, it trashed studio. the place, I think. But we'll see. Yeah. We'll see what the we'll sleep on it, and see what the missus says. She's a bit oh, she's a bit trepidous, trepidatious because she's used to big dogs, but is very strong. I've never. Mm. It felt like a horse pulling on me when I walked Jeez. him. God, my God, we're walking down the lane, and uh, this uh, little bull mastiff came. I say a little, little, this dog looked like a little bull mastiff. Jeez. Yeah. The mouth's frozen. <laughs> I know. 
No, it did freeze for a bit, but I, I just got the last bit. Yeah, we might need a bigger bolt. Right, okay. You have to yeah, buy it. So you're gonna get you're gonna get a a cat. Uh, sorry, a cat. A dog. <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna have to get this dog and then buy a bigger house for the dog. So what are you saying? I think we'll just Would have you... to give him his own couch or something. All oh, right. The thing is, is he likes cuddling and affection, so it's just gonna be sat on us. I think if we get him. Well, I, like I remember was it Kara that used to sleep on top of the sofa in the day? Would you not be screwed if that happened this time? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. He'd train that. I don't think he'd get up there. It'd be funny if he did, because he would sort of block out the sunlight, wouldn't it? <laughs> Are you going to keep the name? Well, I was thinking about this. Uh, he's incredibly responsive to the name Zeus. So when I was walking to him, walking with him, and like, uh, if there was a dog on the other side of the road and he was, you know, showing interest, I would say his name, and he would instantly Zeus. look up at me. So it might be too late. I was thinking maybe I could adapt it to Bruce. <laughs> Bruce, Bruce is good. Goose, you big stud. Um, I think Zeus is a nice name for a big dog. Yeah. God, God, of, God of Thunder. Yeah. yeah. Probably his farts. Imagine his farts <laughs> oh, are quite thunderous. Quite thunderous. Yeah. So. Well, big dog. You want a big dog? Me, no. I want a Jet Russell again. Why? Because, I don't know. I actually wanted a German Shepherd for a long time. Mm, they're I'm, good dogs. I'm used to Jarvis's. Yeah. Stick to what you know. You're not going to get another dog, Matt? Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't know. I've been thinking about... Um, I, I walked past... Uh, there's a house near me. That it has... Um, they have an old... I think it's a border terrier, the ones with like the the beards, yeah. and they're quite nice little dogs, aren't they? Um, yeah. But I don't know. No, I don't know if I can be bothered with walking them and looking after them. To be honest with you, it's a lot. It's a big commitment. It is. It's it a is. fifteen mile walk, and then <laughs> never walk them again. <laughs> it is a big decision, and you've got to think about when you go on holiday and stuff like that. Mm, and it's mm. these. I don't. I suppose the other thing that when we had Ruby, who was an Alsatian, was when we left her, she got quite distressed in the house. Uh, so it's that. And, you know, I, I suppose my wife works from home at the moment. Um, but again, again, it's down to the personality of the dog. Ruby was quite an anxious dog and just wouldn't like leave your side. And as soon as you're up, she was up following you around and stuff all day and that can become quite tight uh, sort of annoying really <laughs> yeah separation anxiety is a, a common thing yeah. isn't it um so stuff like that and then walking and then the size and the molting um yeah so we might just get a cat mm. we talked about getting a, a british blue cat one mm. with the orange eyes yeah one of them and a vimarana they'd be the they'd have the same sort of color you have matching matching pets. Mm-hmm. But then the other thing about having a cat is that I'd have to put in a cat flap, 
another way to put a cat flap in our house would be to like drill through the cavity wall. We've done that. I know. You can get tube extensions. It's quite quite easy. Yeah, so that's what we'd have to do. My brother had a dog flap once. Well, yeah, we had a. Did we have a dog flap? No, I think Ruby just pushed herself through the head through the cat flap. Don't you? Think? <laughs> You're going to get a dog flat for Zeus. I'll just have to take the door off, won't I? <laughs> so, yeah, I don't think that would work. It's, yeah, no. It gave it, it made us clear up the backyard anyway. Backyard's mm. spotless now. All right. Cleaned it all Did they come up. and inspect you to make sure you're a suitable home? No, they did it remotely. So they, oh, right. they gave us a phone call and we sent photos of everything. They wanted to know the heights of the fences and stuff and the gates. Right, okay. And then we meant, went and, and met them today and went on a little walk, all of us. Mm-hmm. So the boys are up for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the missus is unsure. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one thing that, one issue is that our old dog would go to grandma and grandpa's when we went on holiday. Mm. And um, I don't think my mum and dad would be able to walk this dog securely. Mm. So it would be a kennel's job, I think, if we went away for a week, whatever. If we couldn't take him with us, he'd have to go in kennels. Yeah. It's not the end of the world. Lots of folk do that, put the dog in kennels mm. while they go on holiday. So mm-hmm. yeah, That's, yeah. it's not a deal breaker to me that. My only concern is, is, that, is with the missus being able to control him on a walk. Mm. And he was very good on the lead, but at one point he did pull because he wanted to mm. sniff something, mm. and she was like she uh, struggled. Mm-hmm. So if he went after something, I don't That's think it. you would stop him. But I'm sure, I'm sure, um, Cara ran off once, didn't she? Off the lead. All oh, right. Yeah, okay. this is on the lead. I think he would just drag you with him. It'd be like <laughs> one of those western movies. <laughs> He's getting dragged behind him. I don't know. Maybe I'm exaggerating. Maybe he isn't that strong, but he felt pretty... Yeah, it can be like that, can't it, for a big dog? So he's got a lot of weight and power. Yeah. And he wasn't, you know, he just wanted to sniff something. Exactly, that's what I mean. If he actually went for something, I think she might struggle. Mm. Well, come here next week and you'll have a little shih tzu on your desk. (laughs) 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 Fucking never. No, I can't do little dogs. I understand the the the, the um what the, what do you call it the attraction with little dogs, mm. but uh, no, I like something big and cuddly. What's the smallest you'd go? Probably a bull mastiff. Blimey! Or, or a Labrador. Oh, Labrador, mm. yeah. They're not mm. they're not that different in well, bull mastiffs are a bit bigger, chunkier ones. They're not that chunkier, much taller. It's chunkier. Cracky. So mm. we'll see. Do you want to uh, yeah. do on a wrap? Have you anything to add? Yeah, yeah. No, let's no. Uh, let's do it. Yeah, well, it's been a successful podcast. Yeah, some um, some that. excellent um, dog deconstruction there. Yeah, that's good. That's my favourite bit. Mm-hmm. Good. We'll sign off then for this week. I think we've got a swap cast next week, haven't we? Isn't it? Is it Wait. legit bat next week? All right. Okay. Do I, I think. I, I think, think so. Yeah. I just assumed that was a, a Batman. <laughs> I don't talk about Batman. bats. A yeah. legit one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think we're going to swap cast with a legit bat next week, so that'll oh, be fun. Cool. 
Yeah, that'd be good. Yep. Have a good week. Yeah. Yeah. You too. Yeah. And Praise Jabalon. See you next time. Support the show, value for value. Mm -hmm. Build back better. Feces. Cut a great. I've been coming to terms with the fact that I am fucking vegan. Come here, goose, big stud. People have got to understand vaccination is going to be, in the end, your route to liberty. I mean, there can't be some international global conspiracy. Oh, goodness, Because we're getting bored and we want to have fun.